Hello, the DigiGuy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week is Holy Week, so we decided to continue our conversation from last week about cool rubrics in the Triduum. But today, Chris is going to talk specifically about those things that happen in the Easter Vigil. So hopefully you listen to this before you go to the Easter Vigil and you can see and learn some things. So without further ado, episode 40 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. What are we talking about? <laughs> Are we recording? <laughs> Those are the two things every podcast starts with. What are we talking about? Are we recording? You know, we're talking about hidden riches, and I'm doing this on purpose because is it in Sacramentum Caritatis where Pope, Pope Benedict talked about finding the hidden treasures of the rubrics, which is crazy because I don't think anybody thinks of rubrics as treasures. But they're there, and they're hidden, and there's theology contained in them. And the reason I bring this up is because I was in the chapel the other day, and I had this deep, deep desire for a multimillionaire to endow the liturgical institute. Mm -hmm. And it was in prayer. It wasn't just like, oh, I wish we had somebody. I was like, I think God wants this. So I don't know if anybody's out there listening is a millionaire, multimillionaire, billionaire, knows somebody who is, but we do good work here. And the liturgical uh, liturgy guys is just one part of it. So if there are any hidden riches out there, please. Yeah, so there are two things we need. Start with pie crust. Yeah, yeah, we need pie crust, but we also need money. Maybe like $15 million. We'll name the place after your favorite saint or your family. We'll call it the Saint whatever, Liturgical Institute. Notre Dame is famous for this, of course. You know, they have the such and such family center for liturgical studies or whatever. So hidden riches, hidden riches become well, unhidden. Now, Chris, you have many hidden riches to tell. Well, us yeah, about. I want to. I just want to hide them well, <laughs> very well. Uh, I just want to say that we're going to continue our conversation from last week. We did uh, cool rubrics from the Triduum, but Chris, you're going to continue because I think we had to cut short that episode. It was uh, so we're going to do part two. Now these are six more rubrics, but just from the Easter Vigil, correct? Yeah, these. Uh we may not get to six, but these are, let's call them really cool things that may go unnoticed if you're not watching. For That's that. a really long title. I'll just say Cool Rubrics Part 2. And Cool and Rubrics is not no, an oxymoron. Oh, no, no, they go no, together. No. Actually, can I tell a story? So Ke- Kevin... Uh, so well, Aiden Kevin Nichols Wolver- was... <laughs> wrote a tale of two documents. No, uh, I told you my embarrassing Carl story earlier, but we, we won't have to go into that right now. But this was the first, um, like the first... Uh, I don't know, significant uh, presentation I was going to give. Um, and it was actually at the Liturgical Institute. This must have been 15 years ago. Like a conference paper? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a conference. And uh, my uh, topic was to, uh, it was to talk about um, uh, rubrics and the general instruction as exciting sources of theology. I Kevin, remember that. You remember this? I remember okay. That. I think I came up with that idea. Okay, all right. And, and so you came up with it upon you. Oh, yeah, it was a great, great idea. So rubrics exciting sources of theology and so I, I prepared a long time for this I made this handout that I passed out to, to people but I misspelled uh, exciting like I forgot exiting the yeah so <laughs> it, it was rubrics exiting sources of theology <laughs> oh. 
But you know what? Exitus and Reditus is awesome idea, right? Yeah. Exitus are things that come from God and then mm-hmm. return to God and they yeah, take so us back to God. Yeah, that's smart to salvage that. But rubrics from stuff from God that brings us back to God. Well, we talked about Ruby last Ruby, week. Ruby, yeah. These are gems. These Ruby are treasures. It's red. And then, yeah. Dennis, you mentioned that also the wounds of Christ, which is pretty cool. Compared to rubies. Right. So they're the red markings in the missal, which is... Those are the actual mm-hmm. rubrics, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do we? Uh, so what do you got for Easter Vigil? Well, for one, th- okay. So last time we talked about the the proper order of the procession with the 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 thurible, the smoke going first and mm-hmm. the candle going second. And uh, yesterday in class we were talking about this very thing, and I was reminded of this um, this scene in uh, Genesis chapter fifteen where God establishes His covenant with. Abram, I think his name is mm-hmm. right then. Before it was Abraham. Right, right. And so uh, they, he takes these various animals and he, he cuts them in two, right? And he yep. puts a half on one side and half on the other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, what happens next? So the old form of the covenant was you get an animal, you cut it in half, and then you light both of them on fire. And then you walk through in the middle, and that was like the covenant that you made with God. Okay, all right. That's as far as I got. Okay, do you remember uh, what passes through these two halves of the animal? The, the, well, Abram did. Okay, who else? Uh, I, my guess would be God. Okay, in which forms? Oh, man, uh, the Holy Spirit. Okay, and that's half well, the answer. Uh, You're doing pretty well, The Jesse. Son of God. Okay, this is what Genesis chapter 15, verse 17 says. Um, when the sun had set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. Hmm. Right now, this speculation, I guess, this may or may not be relative to a new covenant that takes place uh, at the Easter Vigil, where we see a flaming torch and a smoking pot pass through into the midst of a new covenant. Okay, Paschal candle. Pascal candle. And thurible. Thurible, right there. Wow. Right there. Yeah, very cool, huh? Now, did any of this uh, smoke and fire happen with Christ's sacrifice? Because I know that old, the Old Testament covenants were more foreshadowing of the, the covenant uh, sacrifice of Christ, right? So was there anything during the passion that had smoke and fire well that, that i don't know but okay. certainly we uh we fulfill that type it with the with the the thurible and well, we the have fire no. we have fire on pentecost which yeah. is representative of the holy yeah. spirit so yeah. that's that the torch and the candle right yeah let's stay at the vigil though sure let's stay at the vigil uh, but before we even leave this uh passage though uh earlier on uh god takes abraham it says this is in uh chapter 15 verse 5 He says, God took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, will your descendants be, Mm -hmm. right? So describe the scene. What's happening there? Well, it's daytime because the sun had not set yet. Exactly. So we saw in uh, 17 that the sun had not even set yet. So imagine that, uh, and in fact, chapter 12 says, as the sun was about to set. So back in chapter 5, God takes Abram outside Outside, he says, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. So our first maybe hearing of that would be he goes outside and he looks up and, oh, yeah, there's so many stars, I can't even count them. That's not mm-hmm. what's happening. He goes outside in the middle of the day, 
at least on this reading. Maybe there's some exegetical explanation that would say otherwise. But it's in the middle of the day that God takes Abraham outside. It says, look up and count the stars. Just so will your descendants be. <laughs> so you can't see them. <laughs> you but can't see anything. But, but they are there, and there are a lot of them. Apparently. Yeah. See, and this is why Abraham is called a, the, the father of obedience and faith, because all these things that on the surface of it sound you know, crazy, well, unbelievable. Asked to kill your only yeah. son. And I mean, to everything that God says to him, he says, "Okay, even okay. to conceive yes. Isaac, yes. right, and late yeah. in life and yeah. beyond the years of yeah. childbearing." No. Okay, let's go back to the Easter Vigil then. Here are some uh, uh, what I think are some cool things about the Easter Vigil. Cool rubric. Wait, of the Easter you, Vigil. Before yeah. you do that, how yeah. does the stars and all that complete the animal being split in half? And are, are those related? Well, I think that's just foreshadowing. For yeah, what this we'll is a little later. bit of a, a tangent extension. But the, what's related is we see this smoking pot and this flaming torch all the way back with this first covenant. But associated with that covenant is this great act of faith that God is going to act in ways that you cannot even see that God will fulfill his promises if you see with the eyes of faith. Got it. Okay, all right. Now prove it. Uh, well, <laughs> where are the prove. footnotes, Chris? <laughs> Okay, cool things from the Easter Vigil. Now, one that is uh, not in the Easter Vigil anymore, but that um, would have been really cool had it been, is uh, I'm led to understand that when the fire was lit prior to, to the revision, so I guess this would be uh, in the 1955 or 1951 revisions by Pius XII, there was a special ritual in text that would have been used to ignite the fire. It had to be lit by flint. You can just go take a lighter or anything like that. Hmm. Uh, and what they said the, 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 the flint symbolized was the stone, the tomb, the rock tomb that used to, that, that would be the, the burial place of Jesus. You know, what is rock like? It's hard. dead and hard and Cold. lifeless, becomes the source to Whoa. ignite uh, the new life which would come with Christ. I bet that was a nightmare for the liturgy people trying to light it. It's hard enough to light a fire outside in the wind with, with gasoline, never mind yeah. with uh, a yeah. rock. I thought that was a pun that Jesse was going to make, a nightmare. Like, nope, you know, I didn't think about that one. Really, that's okay. a horse. I guess you guys are learning from me, just like I'm learning from you. Aww. <laughs> so um, there's the, the fire at the beginning, though, So uh, and the, the prayer used to speak about this, uh, this new flame struck from stone. It doesn't say that, unfortunately, but that's still something that uh, we might keep in mind. But here's the first uh, thing that could go unnoticed, and it has to do with the marking of the candle. There's a rubric that says, uh, after the blessing of the new fire, one of the ministers... This is one that we still use. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm reading this right out of the third edition of the Roman Missal. Um, it says... After the blessing of the new fire, one of the ministers brings the paschal candle to the priest who, here it is, cuts across into the candle with a stylus. He cuts hmm. across into the candle with a stylus. I don't, I don't, I'm at a loss for this one. I don't know. I've heard that it's done. I don't know why. Is that like cutting the animal or the piercing of Christ? Uh, yeah, well, this, this is the great uh, liturgical mystery, right? So we read these rubrics, we accept them, but then you try to unpack them and get to the treasure beneath them. Uh, when I was a student here, Dr. Fagerberg would make this observation with uh, regard to what's called sacramental character. You remember what sacramental character is? It's a stamping, impressing of a reality into something. An indelible mark. It's an indelible mark, yeah. The Greek word for character is karik or kerosene, and it literally means uh, like an engraving tool or a sharp stick 
right? So when they would make a movable type, you would take this engraving tool and you'd carve out the letter G according to some fancy font or something like that. And it would stamp it onto the page. And we call the little letters on the page now characters. And it all comes from this tool, uh, this, this word about the engraving tool. And what sacramental character does is that certain sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, it is uh, as if, I imagine, the Holy Spirit coming upon you with a supernatural stylus or sharp stick or engraving tool, and he's going to etch onto your visage the characteristics of Jesus Christ, right? So after receiving those sacraments, you have a conformity to Christ that is indelible. It's etched into your very I don't, ontology, if we can put it that way. Right? Mm, the so word. what we're doing here then, now what most of us will probably see, I mean, this is a convenient uh, uh, way to do it, right? The candle already comes marked, right? And the priest uh, would just like trace uh, the sign of the cross there or the alpha and the omega or the letters. But strictly speaking, what the rubric says, and this is what I think the association is, is to that sacramental character where you take a stylus, an engraving tool, a sharp stick, and you cut into this candle the, the, the cross and the letters conforming this candle to the flaming torch, the pillar of fire that would eventually be Christ. So you're, we're cutting into Christ. Uh, you, are, you are conforming that candle in an indelible, irreversible way to Jesus Christ. Okay. So Perfect. five minutes before that vigil begins, it's just uh, a tubular shape of wax. Right. But after this happens, it is an image of Christ. It's probably like carving the um, consecration crosses on the slab of an altar. It's got the five wounds all of a sudden, and you can't. You can't put that stone back in. It's there forever. Well, let's go. This is a second point. Um, this is at rubric 12. It says, when the cutting of the cross and of the other signs has been completed, the priest inserts five grains of incense into the candle in the form of a cross while saying, by his holy and glorious wounds, may Christ the Lord guard us and protect us. Amen. This is the point you're making here, Dennis. Compare this candle now to the altar. Well, now it's got the wounds of Christ. If it's going to signify Christ, it's now more conformed to Christ's wounded body. And you know, a lot of this liturgy stuff, I've been thinking about this lately, life, death, and resurrection, participate in the Paschal Mystery. Well, you're not going to get crucified. You're not going to go sit in a tomb for three days. You're not going to rise from the dead on the third day. How do we do it? Well, it seems to me this is one way you do it, is you actually kind of you know, re-crucify Christ, but you're sharing in the process of this crucifixion and, and rising in the liturgical rite. Yeah, so when we make this candle like Christ, I mean, eventually each of us will have received a candle from this candle, uh, not just at the vigil, but at the baptism, your baptism, the baptism Correct. of your children. You have the baptismal candle that is taken from this flame of Christ, and we become little flames, I guess, after the example. And we have candles on the Christ. Easter vigil too, right? We do, and right. they're, they're lit from uh, this Paschal candle. Divided but undimmed, they always say, That's right? what so the you take the light sings. from the candle, but it doesn't make the candle any less. Divided but undimmed, I like that. Because right. oh. you would cut a steak in half, you say, oh, and we have half a steak. You take the fire from the Paschal candle, and suddenly the whole church is filled with So fire. nobody's dim-witted, all right. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> So when we do this candle then is we cut into it the sign of the cross so it is like Christ. Then we, uh, just like when we put that sacred scented chrism on the five corners of the altar, which is Christ. So now we insert five grains of incense into this candle. So there's kind of a parallel going along here with the altar and uh, the Paschal candle. And what does incense always stand for? Mm. Uh, Prayers or our prayers going up to heaven? 
because there's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right, that's brought to the child. So you have the gold for the king, the myrrh, and the incense, I think, is uh, the priestly, it's the priestly mm-hmm. sacrificial okay. stuff. Okay. It is, uh, somebody remarked, when you would have scented candles or something like, I mean, this is, the, this is a scented candle, too, which is the scented candle of, yeah, of scented candles, Christ. To me, they make no sense. I believe that. Yeah. All right. So what happens next? All right, so we have the cutting of the candle. Cool. We have the uh, conforming of the candle to Christ in his five wounds with mm-hmm. the, uh, the grains of incense. And just before the procession is to start then, right, so we need to, we need to account for this, uh, this smoking pot, right? This uh, pillar of cloud that's going to get us now into Now don't the, get, we're not talking about smoking pot, pot here, okay? <laughs> we're talking about a smoking a pot. A smoking pot, <laughs> right. okay? All right. Not the smoking of pot. So uh, after the candle is taken care of, then we're going to take care of the thurible. This is what uh, our uh, uh, rubric number 15 from the vigil says. When the candle has been lit, one of the ministers takes burning coals from the fire and places them into the thurible. So where, from where the, is this from the new fire outside? Not from yeah, the from kid. the new fire outside, right? right. Okay, so that, that's something that you do before the vigil starts. You have the fire outside, right? So the the fire, the uh, uh, the first rubric of the vigil is a blazing fire is prepared. Okay, mm-hmm. this is like a campfire. So this takes place before anybody ever shows up. Right, so you show up for the vigil, and already there's this fire going. Right? Mm-hmm. But what happens at this point, most of the time, if you're a server, you know this, is, is we have these little charcoals that come nicely prepackaged, and they have a little bit of a self-igniter around the edge. Oh, of, yeah, it's kind of like cross. a self-light uh, charcoal. It's, gun, you know? it's like, actually gunpowder. Is it? Okay, yeah. Cool. Um, and when you light this with uh, you know, your, your light or whatever it is, and back in the sacristy, it just starts to take off, right? and then it uh, gets red hot like a coal does. In this instance, it's different. How does the thurifer light the charcoal for uh, this procession? He doesn't use one of these uh, nicely prepackaged pieces of charcoal. Rather, you have to, you're going to have to have a scoop or a shovel out there. And imagine digging into the bottom of the Easter fire that's now been burning for, I don't know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whatever. And you're going to scoop out some of those coals from the fire, and you're going to put those into the thurible. Whoa. And then you're going to really? put... Then you're going to put the incense on top of that. Do people really do this? I don't know. Should pay, so. pay attention should at this. Should people really do this? Heck yes. yeah, they should do yeah, it. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. It is awesome. Why it would you awesome. not do that? And why? Well, I mean, th- I think of the association then with uh, um, everything is kind of taking on new life from this fire. It's the source of everything of the Easter Vigil. New coals. New, yeah, new fire, new coals. We're going to end up with a new, we have a new candle. We're going to end up with new water eventually. And in the end, we're going to end up with new Christians through their baptism. We're going to end up with new life. But the source of all of this is kind of the fiat lux of this uh, new creation. It's all coming from this new light. Let there be light. Let there be light. And now let there be new light. There was an old Adam and an old Eve, and there's a new Adam and a new Eve. Now there's a new light. Right. The recreation of the world, not just the creation. But I mean, to your question, I mean, do people actually do this? I don't know. But imagine if it were done, all right, if you actually did cut into that candle. If you actually uh, did start the fire from the coal, or, or rather the, the the charcoal from the coal from the uh, Easter fire, um, does it take more effort to do these things? Yes, you bet yeah. it does. But not that much more, really. Yeah, yeah not a yeah. lot. <laughs> but think of the sacramental symbolism, and consequently the sacramental reality that is able to be brought to the surface when this happens. Right. So there's a lot at stake here. You can do it or not do it, but it's not a, a it's 
it's not for a, a neutral thing. To do these things is to make the, the liturgy of the Easter vigil shine out much more radiantly. Okay, let's take another example. That was a cool rubric or cool whatever. Yeah. Well, I think it is. Yeah. Kind of a nerd that cool way, I guess. Rubric. No, don't be ashamed of living don't be ashamed. Christian life to the fullest. All right, here's another one. This is uh, about who sings the exaltet. This is rubric. I don't even know what the exaltet is. Exalt, let them exalt. I'm going to sing the entire exaltet. That'll take up the rest of oh, the is, is it long? It's quite it's long, long. Yes. You bet it's long. Oh. Um, this is about who sings the exaltet. Now, who generally do we associate singing this with? Who should sing it? Well, I'm probably wrong, but I would say a cantor. No. Yes. You yeah, are dead often wrong. it happens because you are they're dead the only wrong. ones who can sing it. But. Possibly. But listen to what the rubric says about who uh, the church wants this to be sung. I'm dying to know. Yeah, tell I bet me, you will. The Easter proclamation or exaltet may be made in the absence of a deacon by the priest himself. In the absence of a deacon. So the deacon, the is, the deacon is the first choice. Because oh. right? there's a line in, uh, in the exalted that says something like um, it, the deacon is praying for, this line would be uh, uh, left out if a layperson doesn't, uh, to pray for him to God who has so, uh, who has named him to be counted, although unworthy, among the Levites. Hmm. Because the Levites are a type of not just a Levitical priesthood, but in a particular way of the deacons who had care for uh, the temple and the tent and the rest. That was one of the southern tribes in Israel whose job was to do the singing and the liturgical support in the temple of Jerusalem. So the deacon is first. If the deacon can't do it, the priest. If the priest can't do it, who's next? Who's listed next? Oh, man. What's higher than the priest? The bishop. (laughs) Uh, the or by an, another concelebrating priest. Okay. Okay. What, and only then, if a deacon can't do it, the priest celebrant can't do it, or a, a, a concelebrating priest can't do it, then it says, uh, because of necessity, then a lay cantor will do it. So in last place, is always a lay person to sing this. So why would, can you give me an example of why a priest would not be able to do it? Like you can't Maybe he can't sing. sing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it's, it's a, not the easiest thing to sing. Right. And it's quite long. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think in all of this, there's sort of a mentality that the, the that a very easy and automatic default decision is I will just have the cantor do it. Okay. But it doesn't do justice to the theology that's inherent in this particular rubric. We said I think in the former podcast that I mean, the way that Jesus performed his saving work is threefold: as a prophet, as a king, and as a priest. And his priestly work is on full display uh, during his passion. And that's the content that is made present. And if the unseen reality of the triduum is the priestly work of Jesus Christ, the church sacramentalizes that by making the priest do all of these things that he otherwise would not, right? That's how the priesthood of Jesus, that unseen reality, becomes visible and audible now in the church's ritual celebration. So this is the one thing is that... uh, uh, the church calls that upon the priest. Coming by again. The church calls upon the priest to do all of these things uh, at the vigil. Except the deacon here seems to be the exception, right? Uh, yeah, it does seem to be uh, the exception. You know, and there's even there's almost a preface type dialogue in here. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. There's kind of a priestly offering of the candle in a quasi similar way to what would happen later at prior to the offering of the sacrifice in the Eucharist. Hmm. So the priest, even the deacon, shares in, in the priesthood of Christ in a way different from uh, a lay person. You know, I, I, you didn't mention this, but um, don't you baptize the candle too? After you etch it, you dip it in the holy water? 
that's at the uh, at the blessing of the holy. Okay, the so holy that's water. later in the. Yeah, we weren't going to get to that, but there's a couple of cool uh, uh, things going but on kinda, there too. But that's kind of part of this whole uh, priestly. I mean, you also bless the altar as well, and their oils and when you dedicate like an altar. When yeah. you dedicate, yeah. An altar. No, what's happening at the when that candle is lowered into the font? There's a couple of uh, patristic interpretations of that. Is one as it's it's really kind of an usually we associate the candle with the pillar of fire, Christ. But in this case, it's sort of an epiclesis, and it's an epicletic gesture. It accompanies okay. the words of the descent of the Holy Spirit. And just as uh, the Holy Spirit descended upon uh, the womb of the Blessed Mother and Christ was conceived in her, so now the Paschal candle descends upon the womb of the church, which is what the font is, and Christians are, are then conceived in that womb. And they oh, are born. When they're baptized. Uh, yeah, when they're born oh, out of that font. That- I never even heard that before, though. Yeah. The font is the womb of the church. Oh, yeah. That is beautiful. Yeah, you, that's yeah. where you die to your old self and are born again, a Christian. Wow. Side. So you go down into the, that's fantastic. In the womb and the tomb and come out. Well, and here's, here's another example of that is, um, you know, you were just about as to be baptized. You're just about to walk through the waters of death, which is kind of symbolic of the Red Sea. And so here now you have the pillar of fire preceding you going through the waters of the Red Sea, and you were going to follow behind that pillar through the waters mm-hmm. to the other side. So it's wow. also kind of a fulfillment of right. that uh, Red Sea. And in some Eastern traditions, they compare that to Christ in the Jordan. And they, we talked about this a few months ago, that the water they would say the water boiled. It couldn't handle being just plain old water when Christ was in it, and it took on this new energy in life. And so huh. the water's new, and you're not, about, you're not about to go into the old water, but this new water that Christ has gone ahead of you. Oh. Excellent. All right, so exalte. Yeah, so the exalte. All right, so we've talked about cutting the candle, uh, incense in the candle. We talked about the uh, who sings the exaltet. And so now we're on number four. Here's another cool thing about the uh, Paschal uh, Vigil and the exaltet. Excuse me. And the, the proclamation of the gospel. This is something you'll only hear at the... Uh, celebration with the bishop, right? So this is a rubric that exists in the ceremonial of bishops. Uh, it says, after this reading from the, the Apostle Paul, so that's the New Testament, so where we have seven, potentially seven Old Testament readings, then we have the reading from Paul, and then we have the gospel. So after the reading from Paul, uh, as occasion suggests, one of the deacons or the reader goes to the bishop and says to him, most reverend father, I bring you a message of great joy, the message of Alleluia. After this greeting, all rise, and standing without his mitre, the bishop solemnly intones the Alleluia. That is cool. Isn't it? It's like the angel Gabriel showing up and saying, hey, I've got this message for you. It's like a little delivery and angel. The, and the deacons liturgically are very angelic in nature, right? So they're the messengers. Yeah, they're kind of the, uh, they're like, and especially in the East is the, uh, you know, Jacob has this vision of the ladder going up and down, mm-hmm. and the angels kind of are the, the mediators between heaven and earth. They're, the, they're the, the connectors between the sanctuary and the nave. Wow. And so the deacon is the one who gives instructions to the people. The deacon is the one who uh, tells them when to kneel, when to stand. The deacon is often the one who receives the gifts. So he's kind of the, 
the angel going between sanctuary wow. and nave. Between and a lot of the Eastern rites, the deacons have a lot more to do, and they run around inside and out, and they say, wisdom, be attentive, and they encourage everybody to pay attention. Something is about to happen. So they have a lot huh. of uh, that's really procl- cool. proclamatory role. I've never been to a vigil with a bishop. Maybe that's something I'll, on my bucket list. You know, I never have either. Even though I work with uh, the bishop, I'm usually in my own parish for the, uh, for the celebration of the vigil. But I do know that for the first time, at least in La Crosse, we're going to introduce this this year at the vigil. Is this a new thing in the in the right, or it's just... No, no, this has been in the ceremonial of bishops since it was published in, in the 80s. But, but again, people a lot of these neglect things to just, do it, or... I guess, I mean, there's a lot of rubrics. There's a lot going on, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially if we don't see, you know, maybe what the significance is, it's it's especially easy to kind of blur and to gloss over them. But when you see start to see some of the beauty and the content that they have, then they're, they're more attention-grabbing. Right. Yeah, you can, I, I, I watch this on, you know, they, they record and broadcast, and you can see it on YouTube, you know, how they do it at St. Peter's. And sure enough, there's a deacon that will stand up, and he'll sing this line to, uh, to the Holy Father about, uh, Most Reverend Father, I bring you a message of great joy, the message of Alleluia. You know what wow. it really reinforces is that Alleluia is not just a thing we say because we feel like it. There's this thing that's come from heaven, by the way, sort of like the angel appearing to the three shepherds, abiding uh, in the field, saying, hey, the Savior is born today, and then you have to go tell the world. There's also um, the question of um, the peace before the council. You know, we, not, we make the sign of peace now, but before the Second Vatican Council, the priest would kiss the altar and receive the peace from Jesus, and then the line was, receive the peace. So it came from God, and then it was passed on to the deacon and the subdeacon. It wasn't just a sign of peace. Like, here's the peace. The peace came <laughs> down, the pox came down from heaven, wow. and then it was passed from one person to the mm. next. Uh, so it's very much like this. The alleluia sort of comes with the deacon messenger, and then the bishop says, hey, guess what I just heard? Bam, out to wow. the world. Let's go on to, now this is a rubric from the third edition of the Roman. Is this number so, five, right? Well, it's related to that. Okay. But this one would be, should take place in any, any pair. So this, this is, is not new? bishop specific. This is new? I don't think it's new, actually. Oh, okay. it's just a right? But uh, let me read it, and you all tell me what you think. So after the epistle has been read, all rise, then the priest solemnly intones the Alleluia three times, raising his voice by a step each time with all repeating it. If necessary, the psalmist intones the Alleluia. What do you hear? Um, Dennis. Uh, I don't know. I was just. I don't thinking, know. I any, you weren't. Pay, you weren't listening. I wasn't. Say it again. I, I don't know the time. Any time that I've heard something get louder after the third time. Okay, so this is one thing that the Alleluia is repeated three times, right? And in the lexicon of the church, three times is its way of saying the superlative, right? Right. So we say, "Holy, holy, holy, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God." Um, so, holy, holy, holy means holiest. Right. Yeah, holiest. So, yeah, this is they the, didn't have a thing a construction for that in Hebrew, so they would just say it three times to indicate right. that. Right. So this is one way of saying this is the most significant type of Alleluia. Okay, that's uh, the one. It's repeated three times. What else did we notice about it? Got louder. It it doesn't necessarily it doesn't get louder. It goes, it goes up a pitch oh. each time three times. Right? Oh, so Alleluia, uh, Alleluia, Alleluia. It's like the Hollywood so, ending. Bum, ba, ba, ba. It is sort of yeah. yeah. Okay, so it's 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 resurrecting it's rising oh, you know ooh. just as which is the theme of the night there's one other important thing here though after the epistle has been read all rise then the priest solemnly intones the alleluia three times so solemnly who sings it the priest. priest the priest where else throughout the entire liturgical year does the rubric say that the priest is the one who sings the alleluia 
Never. Oh, priest never. never does it. Yeah. He never does it. But on this night, it's the priest who is supposed to sing it himself. Mm-hmm. Now, if he can't do it, the cantor can. But notice, it wants, uh, in this great priestly act of Jesus' paschal mystery, the church wants that to become audible, tangible, sensible in the person of the priest. And we've seen how this happens uh, on Holy Thursday and on Good Friday. Here's another one of these examples where it's the priest himself who is supposed to sing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. We have a lot of these messengers. When you hear about the Gospels, a lot of them, they're, they're telling each other stuff. Oh, I saw him. He was risen. The tomb was empty. Uh, very few people see the resurrected Christ, but it seems like at this moment it's Christ himself saying the Alleluia rather than having somebody, a mm-hmm. messenger, tell you about it. Yeah, and one other thing about the Alleluia, there's an actual setting of the Alleluia in the Missal, right? So it's not any old um, setting. Oh, so that's pretty rare, too. Like you said, uh, the Ubi Caritas, like... The, the missile rarely says what you're supposed to sing or even mm-hmm. how you're supposed to sing it in this case. Right, and so this just doesn't say sing Alleluia. It says sing Alleluia, here's the music. It's printed in the missile. Do you know how it goes? I do. Let's go. Alleluia. And then the people re- respond to that. Yeah, I could do that. And then it Not goes up a step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the people repeat it. And then he sings it a third time. Is this more difficult to do than the simple customary Alleluia? Yes, but it's yes. so yes, much it cooler. Yeah, there's so many layers. I never heard this before. This is great. Mm, yeah. yeah, I hope you hear it uh, at this uh, at this vigil. You know, it, it is a true workout. Uh, mm-hmm. These these uh, Triduum liturgies, um, but they're they're so worth it to to be attentive to the rubrics and doing one's best to implement them as uh, the church has it laid out. You know, and if we can do that, then the mystery, which is Christ himself and his Paschal mystery, can truly radiate out and touch people in a way that, uh, you know, if we don't do these things, then it might be, a, you know, a little bit, the, the, the substance remains the same, but it lacks a little bit of the luster that it might otherwise have. Hey, Jesse, do we have a liturgical question today? Uh, we do have a Do we have a liturgical question today? Oh, yeah. Uh, do we have a liturgical question today? Yes, we do. Let's do it. <laughs> Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Hi, Dennis, Chris, and Jesse. 
I am an undergraduate student at Vanderbilt University, and several of my friends and I at our Catholic campus ministry here are big fans of the liturgy guys. Awesome. Thanks Thanks for listening. Uh, We're looking forward to the Young Adult Liturgy Conference in a few weeks. Uh, That's the Transfigured Conference in Chicago. If you want to come, it's www.btransfigured.com. It's going to be great. That's what they're talking about. Uh, He says, I have a question about a detail that's come up a couple of times since your episode on postures. You highlighted that in the new translation of the Roman Missal, the congregation should rise after the celebrant says, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. Our chaplain celebrates the liturgy in a very traditional style. We celebrate Sunday and solemnities with full chant dialogue and also with incense. Based upon my experience, this instruction about standing seems odd for masses celebrated with incense. At the offertory, the priest senses the gifts, altar, and crucifix. Then the thoroughfare senses the priest, and then the thoroughfare goes to the foot of the altar and senses the congregation for which they rise before the priest offers the invitation to prayer. It seems like there's a discrepancy here. Could you offer some clarification? He says, thanks for sharing your knowledge and love for the liturgy with us. Hope we'll see you at the conference. And that is from Aaron Aziz. Aaron Aziz, yeah. all right. Thank you, Aaron. Smart question, Hopefully too. I pronounced your uh, last name right. But Chris, you mm. have some enlightenment on this? Well, we'll see. I, you're right, this, this rubric about standing before replying uh, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands. This is something that's uh, often overlooked. Uh, it seems to be hard to implement or to acknowledge. Uh, and in fact, when Father Martis and I would discuss this, we, we always suggested that the easiest way around this would just to be use, just to use incense at every Mass. And then uh, <laughs> the rubric wouldn't be uh, odd, uh, as Aaron suggests so much. It would be superfluous because what ought to happen is just exactly as he describes the deacon or the thurifer would come, and the people would then rise, would be incensed, and then the priest would say, uh, orate fratres. Right. So and they're so, already standing. Right, right. And so the rubric in this case it would just be uh, super, superfluous because they're already standing. So, so they're already doing it, I guess, the correct way. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And yeah. I wonder if this isn't just a response since they know that when incense isn't used, people should stand up. I mean, I wonder if they're just taking into account that incense often isn't used, so they want to make sure people are standing. Yeah, and maybe just briefly, why ought we to be standing at that point? I mean, again, the priest is saying, orate fratres. It's a command. It's not not like oremus, which is an invitation. It's an orate. It's a command to pray. And And standing is the posture of prayer. Of respect, of prayer, of readiness. You know, we're about to walk into this uh, sacrifice and it's a very important prayer that we're making. We're praying that the sacrifice at the priest's hands may be acceptable, and that's our sacrifice too, unto God's glory and our salvation. I mean, what, what's, what's a more important thing to pray for than that? And so we want to put into our bodies the importance of the, the supplication that we're making to God. And so that's why the church asks us to be standing at that point, whether we've just stood or we've been standing since the insensation. Perfect. Aaron, I hope that answers your question, and uh, we're excited to see you at the conference. If any of you uh, listeners have a question for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.
Now that's a podcast.